Well, let's start with a prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that your majesty is so great and that you have chosen to promise us that one day we will see the kingdom of God as you showed your disciples on Mount Hermon. And we thank you that you are the God who has the power to exercise all authority over every creature in heaven and on earth and below. So we just pray that you would come now and that you would speak through me and the words that I say would be your words and that your thoughts would permeate and my thoughts would go out the window. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, well, today our scripture will be Mark 9, verses 1 through 29. It's a a very meaty passage, unfortunately. We're going to have to breeze through some of the meat, but we're going to hit the good points. But first I want to look at uh, the first 13 verses, and then we'll take the last 15 verses in the second half. But some background to our scripture. As Brother Matthew preached last time on Mark chapter 8, we would have seen that Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they gave some answers. And then he asked the real question he wanted to get at. Who do you say that I am? And of course this was the first time and the last time before the death and resurrection of Christ that the apostle Peter got it right. He said, you are the Christ. So, and we see in chapter 8 that Jesus begins teaching about his death and that the disciples really didn't understand what he was saying. And he finishes his talk off at Caesarea Philippi with the statement found in our first verse. So, with that being said, let's go to our passage. Mark chapter 9, verse 1 through 13 at first, and then we'll handle the rest. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is, good for, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this raising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written, 
of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. So let's take a closer look. Starting in verse 1, as we just read, and, they, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This would not necessarily have been a shocking statement to the people who heard it. It would be a shocking statement to us, but it wouldn't be a shocking statement for them, to them because of what they knew or what they thought they knew of the Messiah. They knew that Jesus was the Messiah because he affirmed what Peter had said, you are the Christ, meaning the sent one. They had been preaching the word, the kingdom of God is at hand for the last two and a half years or so. They knew that when the Messiah came, he would set up his kingdom from such passages as Isaiah 9 Verse 6 and 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The disciples, who, knowing who Jesus was and hearing his teaching about the kingdom, expected naturally that the kingdom would be established at any moment. What the Jews did not do in the Old Testament is they did not put together the passages concerning Christ's sufferings with his glory. They failed to put that together. And so Christ did come. The Messiah did come for his first advent. But it was not to establish his kingdom because the people rejected him. They rejected the Messiah, as we'll see later. And he withdrew that kingdom offer. Realizing that this is the same conversation that Jesus had just began to explain his future sufferings when he said that the kingdom of God would come with power before some of them had died. This was the same conversation that he had just began to tell of his future death. But we see in Luke 18, Luke 18 says, Jesus for the third time told his disciples about his death. And in verse 34, this is what the scripture says, But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what they said. The disciples could not understand when Jesus was teaching of his death. Based on what was said in Luke chapter 18 concerning the time when he told the disciples for the third time about his death. So it makes logical sense that the first two times the meaning was hidden from them. 
why would God not allow them to understand this? What was the meaning to hide these warnings concerning the sufferings of Christ? They still had to preach the kingdom. They still had to preach that it was at hand up until the time in which he would be betrayed and arrested. Up until the time in which Christ would say, the kingdom offer is off the table. He was offering a literal earthly political kingdom. And until the Jews rejected it, it was on the table. But when the Jews rejected the Christ, Christ removed the kingdom offer as found in Matthew 21, 43. Verse 2 says of our passage, And after six days, Jesus took with Peter or took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. We see in the parable account in Luke chapter 9 that when they got to the top of this mountain, they were praying they were praying. And in Luke chapter 9, 32, it says, or it indicates that Peter and James and John must have fallen asleep as Jesus was praying, which is a typical scene because we saw this in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus had to remind the disciples to wake up and to pray. So we see once again that Jesus was praying and the three disciples fell asleep. In our passage, verse 4 says, And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Just had to check my slides. Sorry about that. How did they know it was Elijah and Moses? Well, in the three parable accounts concerning, or parallel accounts concerning the transfiguration, we're not told how these individuals knew that it was Elijah and Moses. Kent Hughes, a commenter on the book of Mark, suggests that maybe they were directing their conversation by using their names, saying, Moses, what do you think about this? Oh, that's a good point, Elijah. I think that's kind of formal, but it's a possibility. We must take into account the ability of the Holy Spirit to reveal such matters to the inspired writers of the scriptures. The Holy Spirit could have indicated to them that this was Moses and Elijah. Who knows, maybe they were wearing name tags. Doubt it. For all we know, Jesus might have taken the time as they were going down the mountain to explain the situation, to give them a little bit further information about what had just happened. We do see as he was coming down from the mountain that he warns them or instructs them not to tell anybody until he had risen from the dead. Why the transfiguration? We aren't for sure why. There again, the Bible's kind of silent about what was the pertinent reason. What was the reason for the transfiguration? Kent Hughes says it was a glance back and a look forward into the future. A glance back, looking back to his glory he had before he came, became man. And a looking forward to when his glory would be restored. 
William MacDonald says, in reference to having just six days before told them of his death, the Lord now gives the other side of the picture. Through dis- though discipleship would cost them dearly in their life, it would be rewarded with glory by and by. So William MacDonald seems to think that this was a way for the Lord to show the rewards of doing it God's way. What did the men talk about during the transfiguration? Well, Luke chapter 9, verse 31 says this about Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. They were talking about the Lord's death. They were talking about the Lord's death. They knew something about God's plan of redemption concerning the sufferings in which would happen in Jerusalem. There must be some learning going on in heaven. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Peter was heavy with sleep, according to Luke 9.32. And verse 33 says that he did not know what he had said. There's some debate over why Peter might have said this. Some say it was Peter trying to establish the kingdom of God at that point, so that Christ wouldn't have to die. He was trying to find a loophole so that Christ wouldn't have to suffer because, you know, Peter was one of those guys who kept getting in trouble for saying, I'm not going to let you die. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm going to be right there. He was even called the devil because of his attitude towards this. He said, get behind me, Satan. Well... I don't think that this could be so because they didn't understand. The meaning was hidden from them concerning the times in which Jesus taught about his death. If we take Luke 18 as the holy inspired scripture. Grandpa Phil thinks that Peter did not want the moment to end so soon. Peter saw the guys leaving and he said, wait, let's make tabernacles. Let's have a camp out. Let's hold off on leaving. Well, I love Grandpa. I spend about 20 hours with him each week, but I think, I, I don't think I agree with him. Cause, and don't tell him I said this, please. Luke 9.33 says that he didn't know what he had said. This was just simply a case of diarrhea of the mouth, a case in which Peter was speaking without thinking, something I am truly guilty of. Ask my wife, who's laughing in the back row. She can tell you that I speak before I think. I think this is just simply Peter opening his mouth one more time before he should have. Verse 7 in our passage says, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, Listen to him. That sounds familiar, right? That happened at the baptism. Now they were not just in the presence of Moses, the giver of the law, or Elijah, a major prophet in the Old Testament, 
one who was said to come before the Christ to restore all things, and the Son of God. Those three people are pretty impressive to be in the presence of. But now they were in the presence of Almighty God the Father, who appeared in a cloud, much like he did in the Old Testament. There were several instances where the Spirit of God the Father, because he's not bodily, he's a spirit being, the Spirit appeared to the people of the Old Testament in a cloud. God led the Israelites out of Egypt as a pillar of cloud by day. God showed Moses his glory by making his glory pass over the top of him in a cloud. God, as a cloud, filled the tabernacle in the days of Moses and the temple in the days of Solomon. The last appearance of the cloud in the Old Testament, to my recollection, was when the Spirit of God left the temple because of the, the sadness, the, the declined state, spiritual state of Israel, when the Spirit of God would no longer be with them. God the Father, out of the cloud, restates a quote, Okay. God the Father, out of the cloud, restates a quote from Psalm 2, which is in relation to God promising Christ the nations as his inheritance. The Father was reaffirming the authenticity of the message of Christ and his authority to perform his ministry that he had been performing by saying, This is my Son. Listen to him. Peter says that this experience is one of the basis for why he is a messenger of the gospel in 1 Peter 1, 16-19. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone, but only Jesus. I think it was Kent Hughes who said that should be our theology. After we've done all our studying, it should only come back to Jesus. Our focus should only be on Jesus. In a twinkling of an eye, the cloud, Moses, and Elijah were all gone. It was just Jesus, James, John, and Peter up on the mountain. Mark 17.6 says that when they heard the voice of God in the cloud, they were afraid and fell to the ground. So they took their eyes off of Moses and Elijah and Jesus, and they were face down on the ground. Mark 17, 7 says, or Matthew 17, 7 says, Jesus said to them, Rise and have no fear. So after the cloud had spoken, and after the cloud and Moses and Elijah had gone away, Jesus came up to them and patted them on their shoulder and said, Rise and have no fear, and began to walk down the mountain with them. Verse 9 says, And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Why keep this instance a secret? For the same reason that the disciples were not allowed to understand what was meant by Christ's death. 
they had a message to preach about the kingdom and could not do it enthusiastically if they knew that the kingdom wasn't coming because the people were ultimately going to reject the Messiah and so the kingdom offer was going to be taken off the table. So they had to go on preaching the message that the kingdom was at hand. Verse 10 says, So they kept the matters to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. This could not make, they could not make sense of the idea of Christ dying, let alone rising from the dead. They could not make sense of Christ dying, let alone rising from the dead. Verse 11 says, And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. They knew that Malachi had excuse me, prophesied that Elijah would come first. Malachi 4, verses 5 through 6 says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Matthew 17, 12 through 13 includes this in the disciples and Jesus' conversation on the way down from the mountain. Jesus is speaking here when he says, But I tell you that Elijah has come already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Let's move on to the second part of the uh, passages, <coughs> and then we will bring a conclusion together, because though these are two separate events, really they go well together, because it was synchronizing. I mean, it was one right after another. So let's read Mark 9, verse 14 through 29. And when they came to the disciples... That's when Jesus and his three disciples came down the mountain. They saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And they asked them, what, and he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son, or I brought my son to you. For he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? 
bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he rose, he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So let's take a little bit of a deeper look. Verse 14 of what we just read says, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. As the Lord and the three disciples came off the mountain, they had a transition shock, going from heavenly peace on top of the mountain in the presence of Old Testament saints and God to an arguing mob of self-righteous unbelievers. Go from heavenly to worldly. I think I'd just need a a five-minute break just to get my mind together if I had to go from that situation to this situation. Verse 15 says, And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. They were not able. The unknown man, this father, has a knowledge of who Jesus is and calling him teacher. He's probably heard of Jesus over the last two and a half years. Most people had heard of Jesus. They were either fans or not fans. Not very many people said in the on the fence when it came to Jesus. He had a bit of faith to think that Jesus or his disciples could heal him, but it is apparently apparent that his faith had shrunken considerably due to the fact that as many as nine disciples who were left down at the base of the mountain could not cast out this demon. He probably approached Judas in doubting Thomas first, and it was all downhill after that. What do you want? I'm counting money here. Um, I think I might be able to heal, but I won't believe until I see it. So it was probably just downhill from there. He had respect for Jesus. Matthew 17:14 says, He came and kneeled before him. 
He came and kneeled, a reverent sign of respect. Even though his faith had probably shrunken a little bit, he still came and kneeled. In verse 19, Jesus said, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. This sorrowful cry out of the Savior's mouth was directed at those who doubted his abilities to heal and his disciples who apparently had too little of faith to heal him. Verse 20 says, And they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him immediately, it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. This isn't like my car. When I take it to the mechanic, it never is doing the problem. But when they took the boy to the Savior, the problem was still there. You know what I'm talking about? Everybody knows what I'm talking about. But anyways, so this boy is just having a demonic attack right in front of the Savior. Imagine this is your child being thrown to the ground in so much pain and torment, foaming at the mouth, grinding his teeth, just incontrollably. This was his only child, according to Luke 9.38. He was to be the inheritor, the successor of the family trade. He was the one who was supposed to take care of the mother and father when they were getting older. He was to marry and have children and pass on the family lineage. A lot was riding on this boy to become well and have a normal life. This father was in a desperate place. This father was in a very desperate place. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, this is no new ache in the father's heart. And it has often cast him, excuse me, I think maybe, there you go, sorry about that. But it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. This should be a warning to all those, and maybe there's none in this room, but maybe we know somebody who's interested in the things of the occult, into Ouija boards and mediums and all this satanic stuff. The Bible clearly teaches that it's an abomination to the Lord, that it's wicked stuff, that we as believers shouldn't be involved in this kind of stuff. But there's a craze out in this world of people trying to usurp all the possible knowledge of the demon world. It's all about fun for those who first start I know several young adults who believe there is no harm who can come from, that can come from this. They're in my Bible study. They believe that they can go to a medium and not be affected by demonic, demonic forces. But it's the, de- it's the devil's desire to harm you, to make you nothing in resemblance to God. You were created in God's image, and he hates that. This is a real deal out there. This isn't make-believe. There's a demonic world out there, and there is a real enemy who would like nothing more than to have you resemble 0% of the Lord God. 
You were created in his image, and he hates that. He is a roaring lion seeking whomever he can consume. He uses occult stuff and Ouija boards and mediums and etc. to trick you and to harm you. He is a mighty army of demons seeking to harm you. We must realize, and not enough people in my generation and in this world realize that it's a real world and the devil's desire for your life is to destroy you. To destroy you. But we have a mightier God. So we need to remember that. In this passage, the demon that was sent to harm this young man, this boy, we don't really know how old he was, was seeking to do that by completing, he was seeking to complete his task by controlling his physical nature, throwing him around, often into water and fire to destroy him. His mental sense, sense, and the fact that he could not communicate to the world, his spiritual sense, and the fact that the demon was in control of all the matters of spiritual life. The devil sent this demon to harm this man, to destroy this man, and he was doing a pretty good job. All his father wants is for his son to be normal, so he cries out, Have compassion on us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus is saying, I'm the son of God. If you can, what are you talking about? I have the power. Do you have the faith that I can do this miracle? The father replies honestly, I have faith but strengthen it. I have faith, but strengthen it. I believe, but help my unbelief. We are like this in times of trials. Last Saturday, I was at a tea party. Anybody want to laugh about that? I was at a tea party, and I had my finger up. My father-in-law was teaching me the etiquette of his tea party. And before the tea party got over, I got a phone call. And it was my mother saying my sister was in a wreck. And all she knew was, the police had said, come and get your daughter's dog. That's all we knew. Sovereignly, God had me at this tea party 20 miles from where my sister had wrecked. Otherwise, I would have been up here two hours away. And so I was able to race over there, and I raced. My wife's PT Cruiser has never seen that speed. Sorry, honey. Got to find out sometime. But anyway. I was praying like no other because I didn't know what was going on. All I knew was my mother was told to come get the dog. Nothing about come get your child. Nothing about your child dead. Nothing about your child being sent to the hospital. It was just come get the dog. And so I was praying like crazy that the police wouldn't pull me over and that my sister would be okay. But unfortunately, I, uh, I was a little unsure. I was a little unsure that my sister would be okay. My faith was a little weak. And I think we can all relate to that. We pray to God, Oh God, help us, deliver us from this situation. But in the back of our mind, we start to think, Maybe he's not going to. Maybe, maybe I didn't pray right. Maybe I didn't do this right. 
James 1, 8, 1, 7, and 8 says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for there is, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For what person, or for that person, must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We're supposed to pray without doubting. We must pray with faith that God can do all things according to his will. But we should be like this father who seeks God to strengthen his faith. We should say, Lord, I have faith that you can do this. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. We should seek God to strengthen our faith because in reality it's only by his ability that this is going to be taken care of. Verse 25 says, And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Jesus did not desire a crowd of witnesses, so he performed the miracle quickly. He saw the crowd coming and he said, Get out of there. Don't return. It wasn't Christ's time to be elevated. It wasn't his time to be exalted. And so he didn't want he didn't want it to come out of due time. That's kind of why in the Gospels we see a lot of miracles being done, but the person is told, don't tell anybody. You know, go to the priest, do this, but don't tell anybody because it wasn't Christ's time. John especially, I think, is the Gospel that says it, it talks a lot about his hour, his hour. My, his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. My hour has come. You know, it's, it's all about Christ's hour. And so therefore, he didn't want the large crowd to come. So he performed this miracle kind of quickly. Verse 26 says, And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse. So most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Luke 9.43 tells us that all the people were astonished at the majesty of God. The boy laid at the feet of Jesus in awe of him as if he was dead. Probably also kind of taking an inventory. Yeah, this part feels normal. This part feels normal. This is the first time he had been normal for quite a while. But the Lord Jesus rose him up and sent him home. What a wonderful story. The boy's life had been restored. The normalcy had been restored. He can go do the things expected of him as being the only child. Verse 28 says, And when he entered the house, his disciples asked him pri privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Some manuscripts actually say prayer and fasting. We know that Jesus was up on the hill praying. He was up on the mountain praying. There's no mention of food. Maybe he was fasting too. We don't know. But our ESV says this kind could be driven out by nothing but prayer. I think the New King James Version says prayer and fasting. But this is only half the reason. If we look at the parallel account in Matthew 17, verses 19 through 21, 
which adds the other half. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you would say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it would move. It will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. This seems like a contradiction. One gospel saying this, one gospel saying that, huh? Well, we know that there is no contradiction here. Mark says that they had to pray to cast out the demon, but Matthew says they needed faith. These things actually go together. The disciples needed to have faith in God as the source of their abilities. He gave it to them. He was working through them. They were never on their own, in their own power, performing any of these miracles. It was a God-given power. They should have prayed to God and asked him for the ability to do it. And it would have happened. Instead, they tried in their own vain power. They should have exercised their faith through prayer to have the demon exercised out of this boy. And it would have happened. And the choir all said hallelujah when he turned to the conclusion page. And I apparently skipped the last slide, but it's okay. Okay. One day when the kingdom of God comes, when the second advent happens and Christ sets up his kingdom, we will be in the presence of Old Testament saints and prophets, New Testament saints, prophets, and apostles, God the Son, that's Jesus. God the Father, he will not be visible because he's a spirit being. But he'll be there. We will know his presence. We'll be in the presence of God the Spirit, which we're already in the presence of, hallelujah. But we won't see him. He'll be a spirit, but we'll know he's there. So one day in heaven, we'll be there with the Old Testament folk, the New Testament folk, God the Son, God the Father, and God the Spirit. If you're saying it right, it should have been God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, but who cares? Some people do. Much like the disciples were on Mount Hermon, we will be in the kingdom without the presence of chaos and wickedness as they experienced as they descended from the mountain. Though, even on Mount Hermon, there was sin nature there. The disciples still had their sin nature. But in the future, we will be in the presence of heavenly peace, without chaos, with no sin present. We must have faith in God to do all things according to his will. We can't say if we have faith, we can do everything. If we have faith, we can pick the right lottery numbers. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? No. Dishonest gain is not a good thing. But anyways, we need to have faith and pray according to his will to have things done in our lives. It's smart to recognize in our prayers that we have a weak faith and we need God to strengthen it like that father did. We, like the disciples, need to realize that when we walk around this world in the new person, in our Christian godly nature as we're supposed to, we must realize that it is not I who live, but Christ who lives through me. As the Apostle Paul once said, we need to be aware of our dependence of our good God 
as we're walking through this life, seeking to be his advocates. Let's pray. I don't know if I'm out of time, before time, or after time, but let's pray anyways. Our Father, we thank you for this message. I pray that you would strengthen our faith, that we would have faith to live for you, to live as you have said we ought to. I just pray that you would bring your kingdom soon and very soon so that we can be without the presence of chaos, without the presence of wickedness, without the presence of our own sin natures in which we battle with every day. Lord, I pray that we would realize that we're walking in your strength, that we would not depend on our old selves to get the things done in which you've called us to do, but that we would handle our God-given duties and the strength of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.